Greetings and welcome to The Second Question, a podcast for educators and those who love education. I'm your host, Martin Silverman, a public school educator from beautiful San Antonio, Texas. Now, let's answer the second question. All right, listeners, welcome to this episode of The Second Question. And I'm excited today, uh, as I always am. I always say I'm excited, and I am, because I love meeting new people and making new friends. And I have had already... Uh, a fantastic conversation with my guest today. It's Eric Francis, and Eric is joining us from beautiful Scottsdale, Arizona, where he promises me it's not rainy all the time, even though I told him about my one experience uh, spending time in Scottsdale and it rained every day. Um, Eric is an educator. He's an author. He's a professional developer. He's a presenter. Um, He's a deep thinker, and he's visiting us uh, with us from as I said, Scottsdale, Arizona. Eric, I'm so happy to have you here on the second question. Thank you. Thank you. It's uh, my pleasure to be here and it's an honor to be here as well. And we found out already that we are we share some common roots in the garden spot of America, Brooklyn, New York. Um, and uh, so you, I can already guarantee this. I, you know, I'm not trying to build you up, Eric, but I can already guarantee the listeners this is going to be uh, a phenomenal uh, experience for them because two... Uh, Brooklyn boys in the same spot, you know, you can't help but to have uh, magic created. Well, so, uh, be, will, will our accents come out then when we're talking to each other and start? Well, saying- I, I'm already I'm already hearing yours. We'll have to see what happens with <laughs> mine. So, so let's see how it goes, Eric. Um, you, we were talking a little bit uh, pre-show about a little bit about what you do. Um, your you dropped a teaser for me. You said you were going to tell me about how you came up with the name Maverick Education. But before you do, and it's spelled funny, you guys, you'll have to look at the show notes, make sure you spell it correctly when you look him up. But Eric, tell tell me about your path uh, to where you are now as an educator and uh, about Maverick Education. Well, thanks. I appreciate the time. Um, you know, I never really intended to be an educator. I first uh, wanted to work in the film industry. And I did. That's why I spent my first years in uh, after college. Um, you know, you talked about you went to SUNY Oswego. I went to SUNY Albany. We got my undergrad. And another connection to you is that you were at SUNY Oswego. I was at the other side of the lake at Syracuse University uh, to, uh, you know, get my master's degree in film and television production. And I worked in the film industry for a couple of years and I really didn't like it. Um, it, it was really not a great experience. So, uh, age 25, changed my career, uh, decided that uh, I was going to move out here to Arizona. It's where my parents retired uh, after living in Los Angeles and after living in New York City, working in the film industry. And I became a teacher. I became started out as a middle school teacher, uh, teaching uh, English and math in a small border town on the Arizona-California border called Blythe, California. Uh, then after a couple of years, that I moved uh back here to Phoenix and worked in a Cape Creek Unified School District as a middle school English teacher, then taught high school at Horizon High School out here in Scottsdale, Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, went into administration. I spent a couple of years there as a site administrator, as a dean of students, assistant principal. 
Um, didn't have the greatest experience. I'll admit that it was not um, what I thought it would be. And then I went to the State Department of Education out here in Arizona and became an education program specialist and worked in uh, the Office of English Language Acquisition Services with English Language Learner students. Uh, Title One is where I got my special uh, my specialization, uh, working with uh, federal programs and policies under, uh, at the time, there was no child left behind. It's now become the Every Student Succeeds Act. It's the originally Elementary Secondary Education Act 65. So in 2012, um, somebody put in my head, I should go out and become a, quote, consultant and do consulting. And that's when I started my company, as you talked about, Maverick Education. Um, it's uh, spelled M-A-V-E-R-I-K because it's after my name and my daughter's Madison Avery. And you could probably guess I'm a child of the 80s, so what my favorite movie is, the Top Gun. Top Gun, yeah. yes. So, so my inner 15-year-old talks about, you know, it really gets really excited when people forget my name's Eric and they call me Maverick and I just put my aviators on and flash my Tom Cruise smile. Um, so uh, from there, you know, I was doing Title I consulting, but then I always wanted to be an instructional leader. That's one of, one of the things that inter- um, disappointed me as an instructional, as an administrator, because I thought I'd be doing a lot with professional development, instructional leadership. And when I was an assistant principal, I was doing anything but. I mean, my my grandfathers who were NYPD officers, they would have been proud I became the police officer they always wanted me to be. I was a cop without a badge. I was using their interrogation techniques to find out who skipped fourth hour, who wrecked the bathroom after lunch. So um, I started doing uh, professional development on instructional strategies I did it in school when I was a teacher with questioning strategies. Got fascinated by a concept called depth of knowledge, DOK. It's part of the Common Core training. And then I just started doing more professional development, which is what I wanted to do. And in 2016, I was approached to write my first book uh, from ASED called Now That's a Good Question. It's about how you turn your standards into questions. And uh, my latest book is uh, Deconstructing Depth of Knowledge from Solution Tree. And that has been fulfilled a passion project of mine for the last 10 years about doing a deep dive into um, what exactly depth of knowledge is, why much of the information we've been given about depth of knowledge has been inaccurate and inconsistent because of that DOK wheel, which is also inaccurate. Um, and also working to create a model and a method of teaching and learning that can really benefit us moving forward in education, especially in response to the disruptions we've had because of the pandemic. So uh, that's me. That's who I am. I provide professional development and travel to schools again. I'm excited about that, that I'm in the air and up in the air and, and working again and uh, um, presenting at conferences and yeah, and uh, coming home to Scottsdale to my family. So that's, that's me. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you, you know, you, you, you can't, you can't bring a circle much better to close than that. That sounds like uh, like a great life. So Eric, you know, you, one of the things, by the way, I had to tell you that struck me when you were talking, you were, you just kind of said it offhandedly, but uh, another connection here is my mother, was a uh, secretary, essentially clerical, a secretary in um, the for the NYPD at One Police Plaza. Uh, she worked in the commissioner's floor for her whole, you know, just about her whole career. That was uh, that's our connection to the to Very the NYPD, cool. kind of well, kind of on the civilian like side. We're making a lot of connections here. I mean, oh my gosh, yes, yes. Up, so. uh, No, I'm, and soon you're going to tell me you were at that concert at the Carrier Dome that I was at, and then we're really going to have, um, uh, you know, something to say when. Okay, which concert was, was it? Because I saw a few concerts there. 
Okay, so the Rolling Stones, I saw in there, and I saw the Police. Okay. There. Um, I think those may, actually the only two, but I mean those are two big ones. Yeah. Well, uh, I didn't see them, but I saw Billy Joel at the Carrier Dome. Okay, there you go. Yeah, there you go. I think. Well, I'm older than you, so when <laughs> I would have gone, would have been early, uh, early '80s, and so um, oh. you know, I graduated. Yeah, I graduated in '83 from Oswego. So, oh, then you, uh, you went early. during the peak. I mean, you saw you saw the police when they were the police. I saw the reunion. Oh my time. gosh! Yes. Yeah. So yes. the Eagles in Buffalo when they were the Eagles. You know, like yeah. see the hard part is that you know when I grew up in Albany, we were talking about that, and we really didn't get anybody, and we didn't really get the big. We had a place up there called Saratoga Performing Arts Center, SPAC. Oh, wow. um, yeah, and it was one of like the original outdoor theaters, lawn seats. We get back acts there, but man, we didn't get like the stadium tours because we didn't have a stadium until they opened. Uh, I think what they call it now is uh, it used to be called the Times Union Arena, but now I think it's called the Knickerbocker Arena. I don't know. They changed the names on the stadium so much. When we got that, that's when you know more like the Stones or you know the the Police kind of bands. U two, um, you know Van Halen finally came to Albany. My, I'm a huge Van Halen fan. I used to have to go when I lived upstate. I used to have to go down to the city to go see Van Halen Mass Square Garden. Um, you know, but that's cool, man. That's cool. You got to see, you know, the police in their prime. It sounds like the Stones, you probably got, saw the 81 concert, the 82 concert when uh, Jay Giles opened up and Prince opened yeah. up and everything. So I think tell them I'm a huge music fan, especially classic rock and 80s music. So, Well, I can tell. And so, um, you know, I'm going to go off my script. So uh, first concert for you was what? <laughs> you, you're going to really laugh. Eddie Murphy Delirious Tour. Nice. So, was that in Albany? That was in Albany. So the story is this. I was 12. Okay. Now, don't blame my parents because back then, you know, it was Eddie Murphy. He just did 48 hours and he was known for Saturday Night Live. And, my, and I was always a huge fan of Saturday Night Live ever since I was a little kid. And my dad, there was a place called the Starlight Theater in Latham, New York, where I grew up. It was a small little round theater in the round Coliseum, little, little place. And they announced that Eddie Murphy was coming there on tour. And my dad, I mean, I forget, we were driving by, hey, Eddie Murphy's coming. You know, Gumby, Buckwheat from uh, Stevie Wonder from Saturday Night Live. You want to go see him? It was a delirious tour. Now, if you know about Eddie Murphy, no one knew at that time about Eddie Murphy's, Eddie Murphy's foul mouth. Okay. I'm 12 years old and, and I'm sitting there, you know, I, I feel my mom tightening next to me like, oh my gosh, Eric just heard that. My dad was covering his face, half embarrassed and half laughing hysterically. I'm 12. I'm hearing all these invectives being shout out. If you ever seen that concert, that was the concert, the one that used to be on the HBO special. So that was my first, um, my first concert ever. My first musical concert was uh, Men at Work. Oh my gosh! Okay, I had that album. Yeah, no, I probably still have that. that album. Yeah, everyone had that that album. Business as usual. So, and then Cargo. So, so that's showing my age. But again, with SPAC, that's when we started. Like, you know, I saw Men at Work, and I think I saw Brian Adams that year. Um, I saw Journey on the Frontiers tour that year. But Men at Work was the first one. That was actually my first real music concert. But. Um, you know, the one concert I've always gone to is I've, I've seen Van Halen. I've seen Van Halen so many times. I mean, so many different iterations as, as, as in terms of my age is when I can start going. Like I saw my first Van Halen concert was, um, the Diver Down tour. 
And then after that, I just, you know, would always go see them whenever, you know, they were around, but I'd have to go travel because it wouldn't come to Albany. So. Yeah, no, that's all. That is, I love that. And so I have to tell you, so my first was at 14 uh, in 1976, I saw uh, Elton John at Madison Square Garden Nice. And we could, and we couldn't get tickets, so we bought tickets from a scalper. Right? Uh-huh. We bought we bought floor seats for twenty five dollars, and uh-huh. that was. I mean, I can't tell you how exorbitant that was at that time because I was looking at some of the other shows that I saw around that time. I saw like Heart at the Palladium. Wow! Uh, in yeah, and when the Palladium was a thing in um, mm-hmm. uh, on Fourteenth Street yep. near Union Square in Manhattan, and. Uh, I found the ad for that, and the tickets were like I think six fifty and eight fifty. You know, like that was more typical. So to pay twenty five dollars was exorbitant. exorbitant. But floor seats, floor seats at the Garden to see Elton John in seventy six. You know, that was, it's, uh, and it's sad. It was incredible. Uh, it's what South Concerts has become. I just uh, we have a bunch of concerts coming out here. I just um, bought my wife for our anniversaries this week. I just bought her Duran Duran tickets. You know, paid a couple of hundred for for two for that. It's kind of hard because uh, the night Duran Duran's coming, Sammy Hagar is coming out here with uh, George Thurgood opening. And I'm going to see Sammy Hagar because Michael Anthony is his bassist. So as I said, Van Halen's my favorite band. Um, but so is Led Zeppelin and Jason Bonham's on the drums. So that's kind of why I'm going. So oh my gosh, yeah. splitting that. But uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that that's so cool that, you know, you got to see them in their prime. You got to see them, you know, when it's not so much like that special reunion tour. Um, and that's what, you know, the thing about music. I mean, I really wish I really wish Led Zeppelin would get back together. Um, I, you know, I mean, the fact Eddie Van Halen dying, you know, we're never going to see that again. And and we lost something and there was supposed to be a huge tour with. It was supposed to be like the big Van, epic Van Halen reunion. It was going to be all the iterations of Van Halen. It was going to be with David Lee Roth. It was going to be with Michael Anthony, um, Sammy Hagar. They were supposed to bring back Sher- Gary Sharon. And we'll never see that because, you know, he passed away. So, you know, I, that's the thing. I think sometimes these bands have to pay attention, get past, the, you know, the differences. In the, or like, you know, the Beatles never got back together. and. Right. You know, I, I, you know, guaranteed they would have gotten back together if John, you know, did not, you know, was not assassinated like the way he was. But and I think that's something that, you know, a lot of them need to look at. Um, I, I look at that with Journey right now. I mean, I'm not going to go to a Journey concert, you know, because that's not Steve Perry. Right. You know, someone who sounds like Steve Perry, we might as well go see a cover band. You know, it, it's great. They moved on. But I don't want to see someone do Steve Perry songs. I want to see Steve Perry with Neil Schoen and Jonathan Cain. And, you know, Ross Valerie and Steve Smith do journey, you know, so. Well, no, I completely get that because I, you know, I had the experience of getting to see Queen at Madison Square Garden uh, in 78. And so okay. that was, you know, I mean, like, you're never going to have that experience. My daughter would be very jealous of you because she's my, my kids, yeah. yeah, my 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 kids love these stories. But, uh, you know, you can't relive that life, I guess. Um, so. <laughs> Um, so, Eric, I want to um, I want to keep talking about this, uh, you know, for the rest of the night. But um, yeah. I do want to kind of bring a little bit back to education. So you were talking about when you were telling your uh, bio, your you were talking about how the DOK framework, you know, is is flawed. I, well, you didn't use the word flawed. You said inaccurate, I guess, mm-hmm. was the word you used was right. inaccurate. I know a lot of people use that. And, you know, throwing that out as a provocative a sacrilegious statement, right? So 
when you say that, tell me what you are trying to get people to understand about how to use the framework. Well, let's talk about the DOK wheel first and, and why it's inaccurate. Um, it was the, the DOK, the, the, the whole thing with depth of knowledge, and it's really just a real complex, it's as much of a complex concept, a complex concept, a complex story. Um, the thing about the DOK wheel is that when you look at the DOK wheel, it's full of verbs. And that's not what depth of knowledge is about. Depth of knowledge is about looking beyond the verb to clarify what exactly must students think about or learn. That's defined by the noun or noun phrase that names the content or the subject or skill you're learning. And how deeply must students understand and use their learning? That's the context. Those are the conditions and criteria in which students must demonstrate their knowledge and thinking or learning. The DOK wheel is inaccurate, again, because it's full of verbs. And it was not even developed by Dr. Norman Webb, who came up with the concept of depth of knowledge. The interesting thing about depth of knowledge is that it was never meant to be an academic concept or framework for teaching and learning. It was originally a criterion for alignment studies. And they're not so much even levels, they're categories. So you would look at your standards learning intentions and unwrap them or deconstruct them and say, what is the level? Is it a DOK one, two, three, or four? Then you would look at your curricular activities or assessment items that address the standard. And then you would say, what's the category? One, two, three, or four, and compare them against each other to see how closely the uh, activity or item addresses the standard. That's why he originally developed it. So the DOK levels were never meant to be an academic model or framework or concept for teaching and learning. It was more of a rating scale for alignment studies. When the Common Core standards were implemented, I know you're in Texas and we don't say Common Core in Texas. I've I've trained down there. You say teaks, you know, but depth right, of knowledge. I was, I was going to correct you, but go ahead. You corrected yeah. yourself. Well, it's kind of funny because, you know, depth of knowledge became this concept that became synonymous with what it means to be rigorous or academic or more specifically cognitive rigor because Dr. Karen has took Webb's DOK levels and superimposed them with Bloom's taxonomy to, as a measure of cognitive rigor in matrix form. So when you determine the cognitive rigor of a standard and activity or an assessment item, you first look at the verb and then you put it aside. That's where it is in Bloom's. Where, where Where is it categorized in Blooms? But then you need to look at what exactly must students learn and how deeply must students understand and use their learning in a certain context. That will determine its DOK level. Karen Hess is actually the one who came up with Webs is about what comes after the verb. That DOK wheel was developed by a school teacher in Florida because in the 2000s, Florida was one of the first states to use Webb's depth of knowledge instead of Bloom's taxonomy to do their alignment studies. So someone attempted to be creative and they made this wheel. But what's interesting is that, and Karen Hess talks about in her book, a local assessment toolkit, that the Bloom's, the, the DOK wheel was derived from the Bloom's hot wheel, higher order thinking wheel that was developed in Barbara Clark's Growing Up Gifted. And it's on, it's in her book. And, and I know we're doing sound, but I have her book right here and I'm showing it to you. 
And if you look up page uh, 290 in the book, and I'm going to show you it to you right now, this is the Bloom's Hot Wheel. And basically, if you notice, the only difference between the Bloom's Hot Wheel and the DOK wheel is that the Bloom's wheel has five spokes and the DOK wheel has four spokes. So that's where it came from. So how it got to all of us was when we made the shift to Common Core, 46 states except for Texas and Virginia, and I think Nebraska was one of them, um, and I think Alaska was another one, that they decided not to go Common Core. But these standards were defined by the levels of thinking students must demonstrate according to Bloom's and the depth of knowledge demand according to Webb's. Well, we all know Bloom's and can visualize it because there's all these graphics out there with pyramids and steps. Where is there a graphic for DOK? There was a state, and I want to name the state, but I'm going to tell you, uh, you and I both grew up in that state and and, we're, and went to college in that state. And if you people are still listening, you kind of can basically think what I'm talking about. See what I'm talking about here. They were behind a lot of the training and also the curriculum. They did a Google search and they found that wheel online and said, oh, it's depth of knowledge. And they created this poster. And if you go to the bottom of the poster, you can look it up right now. If you go to the bottom of the poster, the citation, not only does the URL address take you to a dead link, it was never the web alignment tool that he created. It also credits Dr. Norman Webb, who refutes the wheel. And that same state also produced a video that was with a script that was written by Dr. Karen Hess. And they said, look, here's the video we're putting out. And she said, you have the DOK wheel in there. It's not accurate. And they said, too late. The video is already out. So for the last 10 years, we've been given this misinformation. And I was always fascinated by the fact that this thing's inaccurate. And so I did a lot of studies on it. And I was doing a lot of presenting over the last 10 years about what exactly this concept is. But I also did it, took it and turned it into a method model for teaching and learning. And that was kind of like my question to say, so what'd you do during the pandemic? Well, when I got torpedoed <laughs> for my professional development, because no one was wanting professional development and questioning and rigor, I wrote my book and I turned it into uh, not a taxonomy, but a multi-tiered system of support, an RTI model. And the method of teaching and learning with depth of knowledge is teaching and testing starts and stops with the standard, teaching and testing. But teaching and learning and, and the DOK, teaching and testing stops and starts with the DOK level, the standard. But teaching and learning begins at the DOK level where students are and builds upon their strengths so they can rise to reach and go beyond what I call that DOK bar. So in a nutshell, Norman Webb did not create the DOK wheel. He refutes it. It's completely inaccurate. If you ever thought it was another way to do blooms, you're absolutely correct. If it's working for you for higher order thinking, fantastic. Keep using it. But it's not depth of knowledge. And that's why we need to learn and understand what exactly depth of knowledge is and how can it be used accurately and appropriately. So, so you've given us, you know, a real um, explanation of, of what caused you to go into this, you know, uh, field of training and also to write this book. So I want to give you kind of a scenario. So if I am a brand new teacher, mm -hmm. right? And I am earnest and want to do a really great job of, uh, you know, teaching my students to a proper depth of mm -hmm. understanding, right? In a content area, what advice would you like? How would you start me? How would, what would what advice would you give me to start? 
we need to start with the standards and we need to shift how we look at standards. Standards are not so much what is being tested. It's that someone, a governing agency has decided this is what it means to demonstrate proficiency in this subject area at this given grade level. So you start with the standard. What exactly and how deeply does that standard demand students to understand, use their learning to demonstrate proficiency where you can go, they're proficient, okay? So you start with that. From there, you're then gonna have to create a pathway to proficiency or a progression of performance. You're gonna have to deconstruct that standard, not unwrap and unpack it. This is the next step in unwrapping and unpacking the standard. So, you know, the traditional Larry Ainsworth method, which is great, circle the verbs, unalign the nouns, but you don't stop there. You need to ask yourself, what exactly are students thinking about and learning? So let's take a math standard. Fluently multiply multi-digit numbers using a standard algorithm. What are they doing? Multiplying. First verb, put it aside. What exactly are they multiplying? Numbers. Specifically, multi-digit whole numbers. How deeply do they have to multiply? Well, they have to do it fluently, and they have to use the standard algorithm. That's what will determine the depth of knowledge demanded. Now, once you do that, and I came up with, um, it's in my book, and it, it's extensive to describe it. I came up with these terms called DOK descriptors. And this is how you differentiate how you look at the depth of knowledge. It depends. If you're a task-oriented person, you would determine it using task or DOK task uh, descriptors. If you're a skills-oriented person, you would look at it using DOK skills. You, If you're a response-oriented person, you would look at based upon the extent of the response or DOK response students have to provide. If you just want to keep it as simple and, 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 and straightforward, I have this thing called docket. So a DOK1, you just answer it. At a DOK2, you use it to explain it. At a DOK3, you use it to prove it. And at DOK4, you go for it. The amount of time you spend creating an elaborate activity, which never turns out the way we want to plan it, you know, is the amount of time you would create this teaching and learning experience. The great thing about depth of knowledge is that the deeper you go with DOK levels, the more student-centered and student-driven the teaching and learning becomes. You know, DOK1 is traditional teaching and learning, but a DOK2 shifts it to the student where the student has to become a teacher. And you're like the director of a uh, instructional video. You're giving that standard. Fluently multiply multi-digit numbers using a standard algorithm and action. Now the student's demonstrating communicating. DOK3, you give them an outcome, a result, a response, an action, answer, an argument, and have to defend and justify why it's accurate or inaccurate. And a DOK4 is more an extensive learning experience that's more authentic. It's where you're doing STEM or author studies or genre studies. So again, it's really helping the, the, the teacher understand what is that standard demand and how can I use my curriculum as a tool to strengthen and support the teaching and learning experience. Okay. And you know what? And, and that I think, you know, the way that is laid out, at least for me, that is very, not only comprehensible, but that's like doable. You know, you make it sound doable, which is, I think what, uh, you know, I think fear drives a lot of people's, 
uh, planning. I, I, I hate to say it that way, but it's like fear of not doing enough, fear of um, you know going in the wrong direction. But mm-hmm. it sounds like what you're saying is really the information's right there. You just have to, you know, you don't have to go far from the standard. You go to the standard and kind of just, you know, kind of balloon out from what it's what it says in there. So I think that actually makes it a lot more understandable. And you need to really focus on and address the standard. And it's not from a testing standpoint. OK, in fact, what I'm telling a lot of schools right now is say stop saying test and start saying assessment. Because they're not the same thing. You know, a test tells me this is what I know, understand, and do on this day in this snapshot. And this tells me whether you know it or you don't, or you can do it or you don't. But an assessment tells me where are you in your learning and where do we need to go next? And, you know, the sad thing is a lot of kids now, they're they're, they're burnt out from testing. And they're also starting to figure it out that the test is not about them. It's about us as educators. I mean, the worst thing that's going to happen to them, they realize, is that they're either going to get extended learning time through a Title I program or, you know, they're, but they're not they're going to go on to the next grade level because there's not really that many much teeth in the standardized tests. But if we say it as an assessment, then we it, basically the students understand what the intent and purpose is. So I just had a school where, you know, I was talking to leadership and they said, the kids all bombed the test. And I said, well, why do you think they go? Well, they don't care. They threw the test. They knew it. And I said, it's because you call it a test and they know there's no teeth. But what if you call it an assessment? You say that this is telling me where we need to go next. Do we ready to go to a beyond the standard? Or do I need to do more instruction and intervention to make sure you can achieve the standard? So we had a talk with the kids and we talked to them and said, so what happened here? And they're like, we're just tired of testing. We're just tired of this thing. Okay, well, based upon what you did, now you told us that you can't, you're not ready for the next level. You're not ready to go beyond the standard because we need to do more instruction intervention. And the kids are like, we do know this. We're done with it. Well, here's the thing. We're going to give you the, the assessment again. And if you can basically show on the assessment that you can do this, we're ready for the next level. Guess what? The scores miraculously all improved because of the attitude. And when you think about with standards, the problem is this, and this is more of a generalization, I understand, where if you walked into someone's classroom, you'd say, well, what are you teaching today? Well, I'm teaching them how to multiply numbers, multi-digit numbers. Well, what does the standard say? Where's the learning target? Oh, it's over on the board over there. Okay, that's like telling the kids, you're teaching them to run, but you're not telling them what the finish line is, which defines the race. You're like telling me, I'm teaching them how to run, but I'm not telling them whether it's a dash or a marathon. That standard defines the finish line that they need to reach and cross. Can we get all students to reach and cross that finish line? And do we all believe that all students can reach and cross that finish line? It's not a race to get there, but it is running and pathway to reach there, rise to reach and go beyond. And that's where I see teachers like like coaches or like a pit boss in in a race car or that horse trainer. What do the students need? What are their strengths? We know that they can run. We know that they can race cars. We know that they can race horses. What exactly do they need to cross that finish line, to reach that finish line? Yeah, that's a that's a, a great explanation. I appreciate that. 
even for myself after all these years. That that really does uh, clarify even for me. So, Eric, I'm going to throw this. I know we already started. We started with Boomerang. We're going to go with another one here. Okay. So I am a – I'm not, but if I was, if I was a publisher mm-hmm. and I said to you, I want you to write your next book, but it can't be about anything about education. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to come up with a different, a different topic. What's the, what, what are you going to write about? You know, I have an attitude and philosophy that I call shift to what if. Um, and, and really, it's what kind of motivates me and gets me up and gets me going. Really trying to change your, your, your outlook and your mindset about things. You know, a lot of times we have great and, and, and grand ideas and intentions but then we kind of sell ourselves short by saying, well, that's never going to work or I can't do that or I'm too old or I'm whatever. But if you shift to what if, then that will motivate you and compel you to not only take the action, but also take the risk. So if you think about it, we have solace in knowing what the outcome would be. So and it's funny because this has this is what happens in education. We have all these great and grand ideas, and then we spend, yeah, this is a great idea. This is a great learning attention. Now let's figure out every which way why this won't work. Okay, we know what's going to happen if it doesn't work. It's not going to work. But what if it did? Okay. Anything with life, like for example, you know, if you're if you're battling with anxiety and depression, you know you want to go work out and you're just stuck there on the couch and you're like, I know I need to go work out, but it's not going to make me any feel any better. I know it. It's just going to be, you know, just, just, uh, and you know, basically not worth it. But what if it did? You know what I mean? So here's the thing. You do it. It didn't work. Great. You got solace knowing, well, I know that didn't work. But what if it does? Now you know. So you win both ways. You know, it's a catch 44, which is what I like to call it, because you win both ways. So that's the thing. And that's kind of like I look at things. And I think that's, you know, kind of been like how my thing is like, well, what I never want to say what it could have should have. I always try to say, what if? So what if I did this? What if it comes out of this? Like, you know, during the pandemic, I mean, we were all rocked to our core socially and emotionally. And I did a lot of that shift to what if. Well, what if this is what needs to happen to change and shift education? Okay. Well, this is what's happening. And you're absolutely right. Okay. Well, it's never, you're absolutely right. But what if it did? That's why I think I'd write my book. I think I'd say shift to what if, how can you take, you know, conscientious um, actions and, 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 and risks and, and from risk can come from reward. And if you took the risk and it didn't work, you didn't fail. You were unsuccessful. You know, I talked about I was in the film industry before I became a teacher. I didn't fail. I was unsuccessful. I would have failed if I never did it. I failed to become a broadcast journalist. Why? Because I never did it. I failed to become a lawyer. Why? Because I never pursued my law degree. I failed to become an astronaut. Why? Because I never went to the NASA training program. But I've been unsuccessful many times. But sometimes... You got to look at that and say, was I unsuccessful because of the circumstance or was I unsuccessful because I really didn't want it? And that's what I realized about the film industry. I didn't think I wanted it after a while. And that's why I was unsuccessful. And we don't do things because of fear or fear of failure. 
But the truth is, is that we find solace because we fail when we don't. And if we don't, okay, that's good. You know, you didn't have to take that risk. But shift to what if, man. And think about what if, what if. Start thinking more in a positive, not toxic positivity, but more in a conscientious way to say, if I took that action, what if this is the answer? If I took that risk, what if? And, you know, nothing's an overnight sensation, you know, I mean, and, 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 and success is fleeting, but you're never going to try it unless you ask yourself, hmm, what if, and then act upon that, what if? Well, you know, I think you may have just either wrote the pitch for that book orally, (laughs) you know, I think all you need to do is record it and transcribe it. And I think you're ready I think you're ready to go with that. That's you know, it's, uh, all I, about, I, it's all about asking questions, and I don't. Yeah, no, it's a, and it's a great philosophy yeah, as well. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, good, a good outlook, a good outlook for people because uh, it you know just makes a whole lot of sense. You got so, it. Eric, I want to ask you this. Um, you know, the initial when I started this podcast, it was to honor the teachers that helped make us, you know, who we are. Uh, people that had uh, profound influence on us. And um, the reason I call it the second question is that the second question of every one of my teacher interviews is, who is the best teacher you ever had and why were they the best? And so I want to ask you that question, Eric, who's the best teacher you ever had and why were they the best? Hmm. You know, I could name, I can count on one hand probably how many best teachers I've had in my K-20 career because I have a master's degree. You know, let's fo- let's focus on the best because I also want to talk about the ones who had a negative because that's what also compelled me to become a teacher and something I don't think we recognize and realize as teachers. But I want to talk about the best first. Um, I had this teacher, chemistry teacher, her name is Ms. Enochian. Um, It was a Shaker High School in Latham, New York, and she taught me chemistry and I could not get it. I could not get more than 80, 85 in her class. And she used to say this thing where she used to say, you can't go from your house to Macy's unless you have a car. And Macy's was at um, Colony Center in, in, uh, in Colony, New York. And that was kind of the thing with chemistry you had to understand was that you can't go from point A to point Z unless there's some sort of um, action or reaction that takes you there. And I just couldn't grasp it in our class. And I never got more than eight, maybe an 83 or 85 but then when I got to the New York State Regents, which was back in the day, how we got assessed, which is funny when this in this assessment world, I'm like, I've been taking Regents exams all through high school. I know exactly what this is. Um, I got an, I never forget, I got 93 on my midterm and I got a 98 on my final. And I walked up to her at the end of the year, you know, my New York accent, because I was from the city originally when this was upstate New York. I'm like, Ms. Anoki, and I don't mean any disrespect to you, but you know, I can't get more than 85 in your class and I get to the state tests and I got a 93 on the midterm and I got a 98 on the final. You got to explain this to me. You know what she told me? I taught you hard so everything else would be easy. And I got it. And that became my mantra as a teacher. The other one was um, a history teacher I had named Mrs. Engel, who was also at Shaker High School. And, and I'll never forget, I was, you know, I was a cocky kid and, you know, teenager, and I like to, you know, be class clown. And then one time she just said to me, she goes, you are such a bright, sensitive kid. Why do you got to act like 
you are this clown who doesn't care. And that really changed me in terms of my personality, you know, that I didn't have to be the joker. I could be humorous, but I didn't have to be the class clown or I didn't have to be the wise guy and stuff like that. Um, my elementary school teachers also, I know I'm going into a lot of it, you know, Ms. Bowler, who, who really elevated me as a reader and Ms. Klein, um, you know, who, who celebrated me as a reader, even though I wasn't good at math. But, you know, the sad thing is, Marty, I, I had a lot of like really teachers who hurt me, um, and, and, and disappointed me. And, and, and that's why I think compelled me to become a teacher. And I think we need to look at this because I recently had this thing where there was a teacher at my, my high school where I went and we were talking about, we were joking about um, upstate New York, how there was this one um, place in upstate New York where if there's like two, two inches of snow, they'd shut down. Um, and one of my, my friends said to me, he goes, hey, do you know that that's where um, this teacher who was wildly popular, wildly immensely, you know, uh, just this adored teacher and everyone liked him. And I wanted him to like me and he didn't for some reason. I don't know. But, you know, here I am. I'm, I'm, I'm 51 years old and I'm still talking about that to you. And and really, I, I think as a teacher, we need to really understand that. And this is people that understand that that fleeting thing you might have done, you know, might be something that lasts with someone for a lifetime. I mean, he's not going to remember half the things that he said to me that made me feel horrible. But it still stuck with me. And I, and I took that as a teacher to say, I really have to watch out what I say, how I do, how I behave, because that thing that, you know, that, that one day, I mean, that, you know, today's date is uh, March 23rd. And I was a teacher in the classroom, you know, for, for over 10 years, March 23rd for over 20, 10 years. I can't tell you what I did on March 23rd over his, over his 10 plus years, but there's one of my former students who said, who remember, you know, that's the day you taught me how to write paragraphs. Or that's the day you taught me why Huckleberry Finn is a satire and how sat satirizing is about changing behavior. Or that's the day you taught me that Titanic is the perfect movie because the first 90 minutes is more of a female romantic movie and the second 90 minutes is more of an action male thriller. And that's why everybody loves Titanic. So Delta, and that's the kind of stuff I get back. And I'm like, I don't, I don't remember doing that. You know, I'm great you took that experience. But I think that's the thing. And I think that's the thing we need to really consider and think about as teachers. Like our actions are powerful. Our actions are lasting. There are people who are going to talk about you 20, 30 years from now. And I even talk about that with teachers, like to say, well, what do you know the kids took away from this? Are they going to be able just to do that ticket, exit ticket out the door? Are they just going to pass that quiz or that test you're going to give them? Are they going to pass state assessment? Or for 20, 30 years, whatever social media platform we're on, they're going to reach out to you and say, hey, you know what? You're the teacher who believed that I could read or that I, I get choked up about it because I get to kids say, you're the teacher who believed first time, who took the time for me to really understand how to write paragraphs. You gave me index cards and said, write a sentence on every index card. Now put it together. Now write, put all those sentences on one index card. And that's one of my students I have. He's 30 something years old. And he, you know how he introduces me? This is the guy who taught me how to write paragraphs. You know? So, so I think that's the thing. So I'm glad I could share the great teachers and glad the honored teachers. But I also want to say thank you to those teachers who kind of let me down because you helped me become whatever good teacher or great teacher that I guess some people think of me as. So, so thanks to both. Well, you definitely, you learn uh, what to do and what not to do. I mean, that's, 
that's definitely uh, the lesson you get from from all of the people that have kind of a part in molding you. Eric, I want to thank you and tell you how much, uh, it, beyond how much I've enjoyed this conversation and the conversation before, and I'm sure the conversations that will come after. I, I appreciate you. I appreciate the time you spent. Um, I'm so glad we got connected on social media, and I want to thank you for uh, you appearing with me on the second question. Well, thank you for providing uh, me and all of us a platform where we can basically share our ideas and strategies and hopefully help some people out there. You know, it's, uh, you know, it, 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 that's why a lot of us do this. I mean, it's about the work. It's about the mission. It's about the service we provide. You know, we're, you know even though, you know, we may not be in the classroom every day and we may do professional development, we're still teachers. It's just the difference is now teachers are now our students and, and we're there to try to help everyone you know, be great and even be better than they already are. So, you know, thank you for allowing me to get out there the message about DOK, you know, for sharing my ideas and, and thank you for allowing me to be on your show today. And that's it for today's episode of The Second Question. Thanks for joining us. If you like this podcast, subscribe and tell your friends. And don't forget to join us for the next episode where we will answer... The second question.